How's everybody doing tonight? Okay, about three people are doing good. Better than one. So, last week, uh, if you remember, if you were here, uh, John took us through the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter two. Um, we'll be continuing on in Ephesians chapter two. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles. Um, you might remember that he had this whiteboard up here on the, on the right side, which was a really good tool to illustrate a lot of the, the contrast between the life that we used to live, the death that we used to be in, uh, as opposed to the life that we now have in Jesus. Um, so, with that in mind, um, Paul, who is the author of Ephesians, uh, continues on, um, and he, he urges us to remember a little bit more about what our condition was before we came to Christ. <clears throat> and this is how he describes it, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. <clears throat> but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, this is how he describes our prior condition before coming to Christ. Uncircumcised, separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, without hope and without God. Now, in order to really get what Paul is talking about here, there's just a few things we have to understand about each of these points. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and dive in. So first, he addresses his audience, uh, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Might, be, might sound like a pretty odd way to describe somebody as uncircumcised. Um, but that actually would have had quite a lot of meaning to the early church. <clears throat> See, the Jews, they had a covenant relationship with God that God established with them in the Old Testament. A covenant is basically like an agreement between two parties, right? God promised the Jews to bless them and to protect them, and in return, the Jews were committed to following the laws and commandments that he gave to them. And circumcision was given to the Jews as a sign of membership to that covenant that they had with God. Um, a, another example you might uh, consider, just to kind of give more context to this, is baptism. It's similar. Um, baptism is done after you accept Christ into your heart. Your heart is transformed. You've accepted Christ. Um, it is an outward public declaration of the faith that you now have in Christ. That's what baptism is. It's a symbol of a deeper spiritual reality. <clears throat> and just the same. Sorry, is there a lot of feedback? I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, and in the same way as baptism is just an outward act that represents something deeper, circumcision was given as an outward, as a physical act that represented a deeper spiritual truth, representing that covenant with God that the Jews had. And in fact, just to prove this point, uh, there are many times throughout Scripture, I found two specific references, both in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, where the Jews are called to circumcise their hearts. 
meaning that it's not just about the physical act of circumcision, it's about submitting their hearts to Christ, or to God, I guess. Um, and furthermore, just look at how Paul describes this act. You who are Gentiles by birth, some translations say Gentiles in the flesh, um, and then he, later he says, which is done in the body by human hands. It's a physical act that represents something deeper. And the point he's making here by calling his audience, you who once were Gentiles in the flesh, um, the point he's making is that they were once cut off from the promises of God. They were once without his protection, and once without his blessing. That's what the symbolism is here. And so next, Paul goes on and he describes his audience as um, being once separate from Christ. Oh, let me see. So again, I think John did a really good job of describing what exactly it looked like to be separate from Christ last week. Um, there's just this list of things that we used to be and this list of things that we are now. Um, and I remember specifically he said that without Christ, we were dead. We were dead in our sins, in our transgressions, we were dead. Um, and that might sound kind of odd or jarring to some of us. I mean, I know personally, I was alive before I accepted Christ into my heart. I walked around, I did a lot of people things like experiencing emotions or going to work or school or hanging out with people, um, just as I do now. But that's not what true life is really about. I mean, true life, spiritual life, is something that only Christ can give you. Um, and it's true that before I really accepted Christ into my heart, before I was really serious about my faith, I was alive physically, but spiritually without Christ. I wasn't. I was a walking corpse, so to speak. And just to put this kind of into perspective, you can consider the medical term for being brain dead. A lot of people think that you're physically dead after your heart stops beating and your body dies. That's not actually true. Um, the moment you are clinically, officially considered dead is when your brain stops. And that's true because your body can still be alive, your heart can still be beating while your brain is dead. Um, and in the same way, before we accept Christ into our hearts, our bodies might be alive, but spiritually, we are dead. There's many other things that we can talk about, about what it means to be separate from Christ. I mean, think about all the things that Christ does for us, all that he is for us. Uh, think of all the spiritual blessings that you would be left out from without Christ. Uh, think about the light that you don't have, living in darkness. Um, the peace, the rest, the safety um, that only Christ can provide us. He is our guiding prophet, our comforting priest, our sovereign king. Um, he is our hope. And before we came to Christ, we were cut off from all of these things. And I found a quote from Charles Spurgeon that talks a little bit about this. He says, without Christ, without Christ, if this be the description of some of you, we need not talk to you about the fires of hell. Let this alone be enough to startle you, that you are in such a desperate state as to be without Christ. Oh, what terrible evils lie clustering thick within these two words. That's what Charles Spurgeon thought about those two words, separate from Christ. Just being separate from Christ, in his mind, was worse than being in dangers of the fire of hell. So, on to the next point that Paul makes. Um, let's see, where am I at? Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the pro promise. 
So we talked already um, a little bit about um, the covenant that God had with the Jews and the relationship that the Jews had with God. <clears throat> Let me find where I'm at in my notes really quick. Um, so the Jews, they received these laws and commandments from God, and that was their kind of access to God at that point. Um, and they took those laws very, very seriously. There were a number of things that they couldn't do, certain foods they couldn't eat, or groups of people they couldn't be around, things they couldn't do, right? Um, otherwise, they would be considered unclean. And back in those times, when a Jewish believer would become unclean, they had to go through like, a number of different rituals or processes in order to become ritually clean so that they could enter back into the presence of God. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, um, but I just want to bring up the point just to set us up for, um, for the, the next points I'm going to make. There was a lot of tension between the Jews and the Gentiles because of this. I mean, just consider all the wars that the Jews have had all throughout history. I mean, there's the modern example. The nation of Palestine is very famously at war with Jerusalem. Um, but even throughout history, you can read about it in the Old Testament and from sources outside of the Bible. Uh, they have been at war with the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Greeks, the Romans, and so on and so forth. Um, because they considered, and part of what that had to do with was them considering the Gentiles to be unclean and being isolated and separated from those other nations. And likewise, the reason Paul is bringing this up here is because likewise, we were once hostile against God's people. We were once hostile against God, even. Um, and we were unclean, we were sinful. There was something that we were lacking that we needed in order to be in God's presence. So just as the Jews were once at war and hostile against Israel and God's chosen people, we were also excluded from the blessings and protection that God granted to them exclusively. Uh, and finally, the last point he makes here, um, without hope and without God in the world. Many, many people believe in God. If you ask somebody on the streets if they believe in God, you'll get a variety of different answers. Many will say, yes, I believe in God, I believe he is real, but I don't think we can know him. I think he's unknowable. That's, that's the case with agnostics. They believe that God may or may not be real, but they can't know him. Some people think God is real, but he's impersonal. You can't have a relationship with him, whether it means that he's some mystical driving energy or force that lies beneath our physical reality that we can't really know intimately. Um, or if they think that there are many gods, maybe, like I know the Greeks had this whole pantheon of gods that they believed in, and even though those gods were personal, and you could technically, theoretically, have a relationship with them, it wasn't an accurate view of God that they had. Um, the next point I wanted to make about this is that you do have to have an accurate view of God in order to be in relationship with him. If you don't know God, how can you know anything about him? How can you have that relationship with him? And this is proven in scripture by the verse um, that uh, John shared with us last week in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and tremble. Again, the point being, it's not, just, it's not enough just to know about God. It's not just enough to acknowledge the fact that he exists. He is a personal God. He wants to have a relationship with each and every one of us, 
He wants to be involved. He wants to be there. He wants to have that relationship with you. And if you don't have an accurate view of God, um, and only the Bible can give you that accurate view of God, it's not possible for you to have that relationship with him, like the Jews had, for example. And you are, as Paul says, without God in the world. So, just to tie all that up, this is the picture that Paul paints of our condition before we came to Christ. Gentiles who were uncircumcised, without the blessings, promises, or protection that can be granted, that could have been only granted to the Jews in the Old Testament. We were separate from Christ, which means we were without the life or the guidance or any of the other blessings that he gives us, without the hope that only he gives us. We were excluded from Israel, who were God's chosen and holy people, who were the sole recipients of his grace. They were the only ones at that time in the Old Testament who had access to God, and we were excluded from that. And therefore, we were without hope, and we were without God in the world. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. There's still the rest of chapter 2 to talk about. That's just setting up the stage, right? So he continues on in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were far away have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's true that there was a time where we were far away from Christ. We were separate from him. He just finished talking about that. We were Gentiles, we were unclean, we couldn't enter the presence of God. We couldn't have fellowship with the Jews, who were the recipients of God's grace. We were separate from Christ, without hope, without God. But now, Christ has broken down the barrier that prevented us from having that relationship with God. And he continues on in the next few verses. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. There's a lot of really profound truths in there, and there's a lot of depth that we don't have time for tonight. But I'll try to share what I was able to gather out of this, and hopefully we can walk away from tonight's understanding a bit more. So if you remember, we've talked quite a bit about um, the Old Testament covenant relationship that God had with the Jews which of course required them to obey the laws and God would give them blessings and protection. And we talked about the things that they couldn't do, certain foods they couldn't, couldn't eat, certain people they couldn't be around, those sorts of things. Um, and since the Jews were uncircumcised and they were unclean, sorry, the Gentiles, they were uncircumcised and unclean, the Jews couldn't be in contact with them and they couldn't have any sort of fellowship with them. Um, and an example of what that kind of kind of what that tension looks like can actually be found in Acts chapters 10 and 11. Um, so I'll turn there really quick and read a little bit from those sections. 
So starting in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, um, Peter has a vision from the Lord. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, feedback. Sorry. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Okay. Okay. So Peter fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and saw something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Of course, these animals are both, they're both clean and unclean animals, according to the, uh, the Old Testament law. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. So just the fact that it happened three times, it took God so many times for Peter to really get the points of what he was trying to say. Like, what this vision is about, and we'll see this later, is as God is lowering the sheep and commanding Peter to take or get up, kill, and eat, he's essentially saying that you are no longer bound by the restrictions of the laws. And more specifically, he's telling him that it's okay to minister and preach to the Gentiles and to preach to other nations for them to accept Christ. Um, and so after this, Paul goes and he preaches to a particular Gentile, a Roman centurion, that God placed on his heart. Um, and let's, let's see. Uh, that, that Gentile, his name was Cornelius, I believe. Um, and sparing the details, basically, after Peter goes and preaches to this man, who is a Gentile, who would have been considered unclean according to the Old Testament law, Peter then returns to Israel, returns to Jerusalem, and the Jewish believers there start asking him questions. They want to know where he was, who he was with, what he was doing, so on. And after asking, all of him, asking, after asking Peter all these questions, Peter explains the vision that he had from God, and then he explains why he ministers to this Gentile. And you can really see a lot of kind of where their heart would have been towards the Gentiles in chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the Jewish believers, and this is several years after Jesus lived and died on the cross, by the way, the Jews, who were believers, were very surprised that God could save even Gentiles. They never even thought that God might ask Peter or anybody else to go preach to them. <clears throat> so, again, just to labor the point, before we came to Christ, we were like the Gentiles were to the Jews. We were unclean, we were impure, just as the Gentiles were. And just how Gentiles, who were unclean, couldn't have a relationship with God because he is pure, uh, or be involved with his holy people, the Israelites, we were also once unclean and impure and cut off from God. 
But now, since Christ died on the cross, and he forgave our sins, now we are considered pure, we are considered innocent. We have been made clean because of what Christ did. And it's not what we did, um, if you remember last week. Um, let's see, let me find the verse. Yeah, verse, uh, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, and back in Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is because of what Christ did that we are now considered clean. We are now considered innocent. We are now considered pure. We have been forgiven of our sins. And because of that, we now can enter into the relationship with God. So, um, yeah, and every single point that Paul made previously about our prior, prior condition is now fulfilled in Christ. I mean, first of all, it says that we were once separated from Christ. Obviously, we aren't now because Christ himself became our peace. Christ himself broke down the barrier between us and God. And as we are in relationship with Christ, we now have access to the Father. So we're no longer separate from Christ. We now have access to all the spiritual blessings that he gives us, um, being our prophet, our king, um, and so on and so forth. And also, it says here in verse... Um, verse 16, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So how previously Paul said we were once without God in the world, we now have been reconciled to God, and through the cross we can now have a relationship with him. And in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So what that's talking about is the point that the Jews had to follow and commit themselves to the law. And because of that, they couldn't be with the Gentiles because the Gentiles were unclean. Jesus set aside the law. And because of what Jesus did, those who were once considered unclean have now been made clean. And because of that, the hostility that was once against or between the Jews and the Gentiles has been broken down. Christ has united the two groups under himself, and they can now have relationships with each other. They can now be friends, right? They can now worship God together. The Gentiles can be believers, and they can be saved. And that was totally unknowable to the Jews before. final few passages for tonight, starting in verse 19, we see that there's a reason why Paul is telling us all this. Remember in verse 11, he calls us to remember our condition before we accepted Christ. He calls us to remember how we were unclean, remember how we were separate from Christ, separate from God, without hope, all those other things, and excluded from Israel. And then he goes on, describes how Christ has redeemed us in each one of those ways, and the importance and significance of each of those. And now, in the final verses, verses 19 through 22, he kind of gives a reason for all of this. There's a reason he's reminding of this. There's a reason we should remember the way we once were, as opposed to the way we are now. And I'll go ahead and read these verses. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul, in this passage, describes us, the church, the body of believers, as one house, which is built on the foundation of the apostles under Christ. Um, And there's a verse in Matthew chapter 12, specifically verse 25, where Jesus is quoted as saying, a house divided against itself can't stand. There's further context to that verse, but just taking that, uh, that specific phrase, the house divided against itself can't stand. Think about how that applies here. Um, We are all members of one household, the household of God's holy people, right? Um, All throughout scripture, we're referred to as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a family, it's a household. And Jesus says, a household divided against itself cannot stand. And that's also why in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. And that's why it's so important for us to do that, to live at peace with each other. Because if we're divided, if we're hostile against each other, like the Jews and the Gentiles used to be hostile against each other, then the household, the foundation, the whole church, the body of believers, it crumbles when there's divisions, when there's factions, when there's separations, when there's dissensions between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ, then that's not a sustainable way to build up the household of God. And another example of this that I found is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is specifically talking about lawsuits amongst believers. And he's quoted as saying this. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Again, he describes us as brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Notice that's in the past tense. That is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So just notice again how Paul is describing how once upon a time you were this way, and you, you acted this way, you were identified by all these different types of actions, but now because of what Christ did for you, when he washed you, when he justified you, when he died on the cross for you to forgive your sins, now having accepted that There's something you should be doing about that. There's a certain way you're supposed to be living your life now. It doesn't make sense anymore to live in the sin that you used to live in. Because now, having Christ in your heart, think about it. How do you treat your brothers and sisters now that you're part of one household, now that you're unified under God as a group of people who were once sinners but now forgiven? How do you treat one another? I mean, just look around the room. These are your brothers and sisters. We're all gathered here for one purpose, and that's to learn more about God. Think about the relationships you have with these people. Is there any disagreements? 
Are there dissensions? Are there arguments that are happening? Think about your relationships outside of this room with your family members, your friends, your coworkers, whoever it might be, especially those who are also believers like you are. What does it mean for you to live at peace with these people? How do you obey the command in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, to the very best of your ability, live at peace with all these people? Has there been an injustice to you? Do you feel like you've been wronged in some way? How do you take the advice in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and just rather be wronged and accept the injustice rather than escalate the situation or create lawsuits out of it? Um, and there's a number of different ways that we can prove this point in scripture. Um, but I just want to leave you with this thought. In all your relationships, especially among believers, try to keep Christ at the center. Consider the fact that here back in verse uh, um, back in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 2, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. In, the whole, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So in your relationships, especially with other believers, what does it mean for you to keep Christ at the center so that you can raise up the body of believers as a whole? Mm -hmm.